We started a sermon of ser- uh, series of sermons, there we go, last Sunday that I am simply titling Your Biggest Fan. The premise is really simple. God loves to applaud His children. It is one of His favorite things in all the world for God to stand there boldly and loudly clapping for His children. And I do believe that He celebrates us on a regular basis. It is hard to argue with that premise when you read passages of Scripture like this from the book of 1 Peter. Why don't you turn there with me? 1 Peter, chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 9. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Man, that is a passage of scripture that reminds us that we are special in the sight of God. All of his children are special in his sight, in his eyes. What an exciting thing to realize. Now you might hear that verse and think to yourself, when Peter is writing about a holy nation, He must be talking about the Jews. This letter must have been written to the Israelites, not to the Gentiles, people like ourselves. Well, you could hang your hat on that belief until you read the next verse, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That verse alone allows us to know that at least in some part, or portion, portion, Peter is writing also to the Gentiles. Most scholars would tell you that this book was addressed not only to the Jewish people, but also to Gentiles who together now bear the name Christian. So what he is writing about doesn't just center on the Jewish people, a holy nation. It centers on all of God's people, Christians his children. And at the end of that, when we realize that it is directed towards us, we find ourselves saying, wow, wow, we were chosen by God. We were chosen by God. We are special in his sight. We talked about that just a few weeks ago, what it means to be chosen by God. And it leaves us almost speechless. But before we start a party together today, I want you to see another level of what that means. We're going to take a look at some people in Scripture that were chosen by God, that were called by God into some special tasks, some very unique jobs, but it comes at a cost. I want you to see that. But I also want you to pay close attention to their reactions as they respond to God's call. It required something really dramatic. And I'll show it to you as we make our way through it this morning. Let's start, of course, in the Old Testament, the man named Abram. Look at the call of God on his life. This is found in Genesis chapter 12, first book of the Bible. We're going to go to the second verse. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. This is God's promise to Abram. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. If you were Abram, boy, that would sound wonderful. This is God's promise to him. 
Now, it would sound wonderful if you didn't have verse 1 resonating in your mind. Listen to what God said to him before that. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. In order for him to move into the promise, it was going to require some obedience. In order for Abraham to receive what God was offering him, this great blessing that he will make him the father of many nations, he's got to uproot everything. He has to leave everything familiar and go to a new land. That's the call of God on Abram's life. That's what it means to be chosen if you were Abram. Well, let's take a look at Moses' situation. Moses, in the book of Exodus, if you want to turn over there, is pretty well assured that he is special in God's sight. There is no question about that. You know his story, burning bush and all. The Lord sets it on fire, and Moses walks over, and God speaks to him, and the relationship gets, if you will, reestablished between Moses and the Lord. After a period of difficulty in Moses' life, and after years and years and years of wandering in the desert, now all of a sudden God is speaking to him audibly. Man, that'd make you feel special until you hear these words. Exodus chapter 3, verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. At that moment, you can imagine Moses saying, whoa, 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 God, push the brakes, push the brakes. I'm not sure I want to do that. I have some history in Pharaoh's house. I've been out here in the desert for a long time because of some things that happened in Egypt, not real interested in going back. Even though he knows he is special in the sight of the Lord, he knows that he has been chosen by God and he knows that he's been called by God. What he has been called unto is going to require huge sacrifice. These are not the only people that have that story at work in their lives. Let's go together to the book of Job. A lot of people are familiar with Job's story. Job is, man alive, is he ever special. But in his specialness, he was chosen by God to be tested by Satan. Now, I want you to let that soak in for just a second. He was chosen by God to be tested by Satan. Don't believe me on that. You listen to the word of God. This is verse 8 of chapter 1. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Oh, he's chosen by the Lord. He is special in God's sight. Over the course of the next 21 verses, under God's watchful eye, Job will lose every important person in his life except his wife and one servant. And the butter on the biscuit in Job's story in those 21 verses, by the time we get through them, his body is covered in open, painful sores from head to toe. He was chosen by God. He was chosen by God. Now, as you make your way through the book of Job, you'll understand why. It's that Job would give glory to God. The point will come where he will actually make this statement, though he slay me, Yet will I hope in the Lord. And God brings about blessing in Job's life at the end of it that is really beyond measure. Though it is measured, it is beyond measure. But Job had to endure quite a bit 
in order to get there. Make your way on from Job's story into Jeremiah's and you see some of the same things. Join me in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 15. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 15. God says to Jeremiah, For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls, all around and against all the cities of Judah. The Lord said, this is verse 14, The Lord said to me, Out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of Israel. Earlier in in this chapter, God would say to Jeremiah, you're my prophet. You're my man. You're the one that's going to bring my message to the city of Jerusalem, this place that I love. But Jeremiah, don't rest too easy in that because disaster will fall on her and you'll be there and you will live through it. What a tough, tough message. Now this type of thing didn't just happen In the Old Testament, the New Testament has stories much like this where God calls someone into a very, very special role, but it comes at great cost. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke together in the New Testament. Luke chapter 1, I know you're familiar with this part of the story. Everyone is. Luke chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 28. This, of course, is the story of Mary when she hears that she is with child. Verse 28, Gabriel carries the message to her. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Boy, that statement alone, that statement alone would make you feel special. You have the angel Gabriel standing in front of you and he says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But in the very next verse, we get some insight into Mary's heart. In fact, we get some insight into the heart of women. There is an intuition in women that that men tend to not have. So here she has this angel standing in front of her, bringing her a message like this. And this is what the Bible says, verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. That sounded great on the surface, but Mary was troubled by it. Gabriel, knowing that, verse 30, this is what happens. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Oh, she's been chosen. She has been called by the Lord to do something that no one else had ever done before and no one else has ever done after and no one else will ever do. Mary is in a category all her own. She is, according to Scripture, favored by God. She is favored by God. And that favor means that she will live under the stigma of being an unwed mother. She will watch her son be executed at the hands of the government, wrongly executed. Wow. That's what it means to be chosen and called. Well, we move on through some other stories as well, like the disciples. When they were chosen by God, it sounded like this, Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. 
That was the first call on their lives. That was the first moment where they knew they had been chosen by God. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they did. And they died because of Jesus. They followed him. They responded to the call. And they all died because of Jesus. John is the only one who lived into old age, and I don't know that that was a blessing because he was boiled in oil, he was exiled to a prison island, he went through all kinds of struggles and trials before he got to see the Lord face to face. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Each of those guys did. Each of those guys did. Now, I would offer to you that every person that we just read about, every one of these accounts in Scripture, if we were to sit and visit with each of those individuals, not one of them would tell you that it was a mistake for them to have responded to the call, not one of them. Because today, after they made their way through some of these struggles and these difficulties that they had to face in this life, today they stand in the presence of the Lord. The hope of their salvation has been realized. The glory of, of being in God's presence is a part of their life every moment of every day. So not one of them would tell you it was a mistake. Not one of them. Because they would endure it over and over and over again if it led to the same place. Oh, that place is special. That place is special. To be in the presence of the Lord is the hope of salvation for every believer. Jesus promised us this, in this world you will have trials, but take heart, he said, I have overcome the world. So when he makes a declaration like that, he is giving us hope. No matter what it is that we have to face as his chosen child, he will walk through it with us. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I personally believe that as we overcome the world walking with him, there are moments where we will hear him applauding us loudly, saying, hey, you did it. You did it. You endured this. You made your way through, and you kept your eyes focused where they need to be. You kept looking at me. I love the way the Apostle Paul captures that idea in the book of Ephesians. Why don't you turn there with me? Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 3. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. I really like the way Aaron Chambers teaches on this passage. Take a look at what he says. The in him in this verse is referring to Christ. So Paul's point is that before time began, God wanted us to be both pure and his. But he gave us the freedom to choose him back 
being in him is our choice to make. We can choose God or choose to take our chances in, e in an eternity without him. Because he loves us, he hopes we'll choose wisely. He looked across time, pointed at you and me, and said, those people standing there in my son, Christ, I'll take them. And for that, you and I should be grateful because it means that we are loved and that we are special. Man, that's the way to understand what it means to be chosen by God, to be called by God, to be loved by God. And that's what it means to know that there are times where he is standing there applauding loudly for his children, celebrating you as his greatest fan, or your greatest fan. And that began before time. That began before time. Now that is deep biblical teaching for you. But I want you to know that there are things that God applauds that are very tangible. It isn't just that you are his child. It's what you do with that relationship. And one of the things that God applauds the loudest, that God gets the most exuberant about, is transformed thinking. He loves to see that change happen within us when we respond to his call and we get to a place where we are just mirroring a relationship with him, where we are demonstrating on a regular basis that we are his child. There is a change that happens that takes place in the life of every believer where that actually kicks in. And when it kicks in, God is right there saying, way to go. You got it. This is what we are after. Now, in all of those situations that we just read through, from Abram all the way to the disciples, that type of transformation was necessary. They all had to make a choice to deny their own wishes, their own will, and choose God's. And that requires a deep change in thinking, not just living, but in thinking. I can't think of any one individual in all the Bible that demonstrates that better than Joseph. Joseph's story is told in the Old Testament, takes 13 chapters to do it. There is more written about Joseph than most of the people that we see in the New Testament. Joseph's story is well worth reading. It begins in Genesis chapter 37 and goes all the way through the end of the book. God's plan for Joseph was huge. It was huge. But in order to get to the place where he was really used by God, he was going to have to make some dramatic changes. Now, we don't have enough time to just read 13 chapters of the Bible today, and I, I wouldn't put you through that anyway, but I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37 sometime this week and read through Genesis chapter 50. You will not want to put it down. It moves very fast, and Joseph's story has some incredible elements within it. Let me hit some of the high points for you today just to wet your whistle a little bit. We meet him when he was 17 years old. He was tending his father's sheep. That's where we first meet Joseph, where he first shows up. The Bible would tell us that he was a special son of Jacob. Jacob loved him more than he loved his brothers. His brothers did not necessarily care for that. Joseph was raised with a protection from his dad, a special kind of pampering from his dad. We might even say he was a bit spoiled by his dad. 
and his brothers saw every bit of it. So the time came when they had an opportunity to do something about it. Joseph met them out in the fields, and when he did, he, he made a pretty big mistake. He brought with him, a mind, with him a mindset that probably permeated everything that Joseph did. He was a dreamer, and by that I don't just mean that he had big goals. He received dreams from the Lord and interpretations to go with them, and he wasn't afraid to share those dreams. So when he met his brothers, he told them about a dream that he had just had, a dream where they were all bowing down before him. Well, that became the straw that broke the camel's back for those brothers, and they didn't want to hear any more of it, so they devised a plan to kill him. Can you imagine? They devised a plan to kill him. They had had it. This spoiled little snot-nosed kid that had dad's favor, they were done with him. Well, one of his brothers said, there's not much in it for us if we just kill him, so maybe we should sell him. Let's do that. Now, that brother, ostensibly in Scripture, was trying to figure out a way to get Joseph back safely, but it didn't play out. So here's what they did. They throw, threw him into a pit out in the desert, waiting for Egyptian slave traders to come by. When those slave traders came by, they made a deal, and they sold their brother to him believing that they would never see him again. If you think you have difficult family dynamics, you think about what happened to Joseph. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. When they got rid of him, they kind of shook the dust off their feet, washed their hands of Joseph and thought, well, that's it, we're done with him. They had no idea that God had a plan for their brother's life that would eventually involve them as well. When he was sold to those Egyptians, they took him back to Egypt, where he found his way into a high-ranking official's home. That high-ranking official's name was Potiphar. Potiphar saw Joseph as a man that could be trusted and respected, and it seems like it happened very fast. So he gave him control in his home, and Joseph rose to the occasion. As a young man, he just rose to the occasion. Problem was, Potiphar's wife also saw Joseph as a, a man that she wanted to be with, and her desires for him were less than admirable. But Joseph's will was exactly the opposite of her desires. It was admirable. He loved his God and he wanted to remain pure. So he rejected her advances only to hear her scream, just scream as loud as she could, accusations of assault and rape. Potiphar, of course, heard those same accusations and he had Joseph thrown into prison. Didn't even want to hear his side of the story. So he had him thrown into prison where he stayed in relative obscurity for quite a while. Even though he was trusted and respected in prison, he remained there because God was doing something in his life. Until almost, and I say almost, really believing that it was the exact opposite of almost, it was by God's design that he came out of prison and now found himself in Pharaoh's home. It is incredible how rapid this happens. Not only is he in Pharaoh's home in Egypt, but he rises in prominence once again and he becomes the prime minister of the entire nation. He is Pharaoh's right-hand man. 
God did that at a time when he knew that famine was coming and Joseph, given insight from God, said we have to do something about this because there is a time of famine coming and if we don't plan for it, Egypt is going to be in trouble as well all, will all of the nations around us. So Joseph made preparations for seven years to handle the time of famine. Today we still know of Joseph because people use what's referred to as the Joseph Principle all the time. Here it is. The Joseph Principle simply teaches that we have to plan for times of hardship. Make plans and preparations because those times come. The Joseph Principle is at play in businesses. It is at play in nations. It is at play in homes all around the world. We still know about Joseph and what he did for the nation of Egypt. Well, as you continue on through the story, and at this point we're in Genesis chapter 42, you can pick it up and just start reading. Joseph's brothers back in the land of Canaan, along with his father, found themselves captured by the famine. Rumor got to them that there was food in Egypt. They had no idea that it was because of their brother. So Jacob said to his sons, you go to Egypt and you see if you can buy some food. You get there and see what you can do. They had to go and ask their brother for help. They didn't know it was him. They didn't know it was him. 20 plus years had gone by. When they got to Egypt, they were standing in front of him. They were completely clueless. But Joseph wasn't. I can't tell this story without reading this for you. This is found in Genesis 42. I want you to see what happens. Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold all the people of the land. And sold, sold to all the people of the land. That little word to, that makes all the difference. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Remember his dream? Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is I who said to you, You are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your household and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. 
And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them and took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Did you catch, did you catch verse 24? Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them and he took Simeon from them and bound them before their eyes. He knew them. He understood them. And still he was helping them. Oh, he was testing them, but he was helping them. They just came clean. In his presence, they just came clean by what they had done. And here's Joseph full of emotion, so much so that he didn't even want them to see it, so he turns and looks the other way. He takes a moment for himself because his heart, after 20 years of carrying all this pain, was just wrenched. Charles Swindoll says it like this. I really like this. Despair, triumph, heights, depths, dreams, dungeons, promotion, rejection, gain, loss, the ups and downs, the ins and outs, the powerful reality of this man's life was enough to eclipse anything you and I have ever experienced. Sometimes such contrasts cause men and women to forget God. Sometimes they become so severe and cynical that they decide to abandon old friends and turn against their own family. Not so with Joseph. Life's extremities, rather than erasing his memories of home, only deepen them. That's the emotion Joseph was feeling at this point. Well, as you read on through the rest of his story, you see what happens until finally you get to Genesis chapter 50. They had brought Jacob back into Egypt with them. Joseph was reunited with his father and the brother that he loved so dearly. Then his dad died, and his brothers, the 11 of them, they were scared. They were scared for good reason. Joseph had all the power in the world to take their lives and never think twice, never even blink. But he didn't. And when they confessed their fears in Genesis chapter 50, verse 15, this is what happened. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I love how Joseph summed that up. You meant evil against me, but God used it for good. From the beginning of his story to the end of this, in Genesis chapter 50, there is a transformation that happens in his thinking. 
He was full of himself when he brought his dreams before his brothers. He was pampered and spoiled and protected, and now he had become God's person, being used in these mighty, amazing ways. And when he had authority over them, he could have done what any of us would have wanted to do with his father out of the way so that his dad's opinion of him would never be compromised. Joseph could have taken their lives. Instead, he stepped back from it and he said, Am I in the place of God? No, I am not. What you did to me was intended for evil, but God uses it for good. That is transformed thinking. That's what happens when we choose to stop looking at ourselves and place our eyes squarely on God. Now, that leaves a question for all of us, or at least it should. The question's pretty simple. Here it is. What's it take for our thinking to change this dramatically? How do we experience the same thing Joseph did? Really happy you asked, because the Bible gives the answer. Let's go to the New Testament together. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now Paul starts out by talking about us transforming our actions, changing the way we live. But he starts by telling us that it will require something else to happen before our actions will change that dramatically. It's something that modern science, modern medicine has spent no small amount of time trying to work their way through. We call it the renewal of the mind. So does the Bible. The Bible calls it the renewal of the mind. The renewal of the mind is very simply summed up this way. No longer conforming to the things that the world says is important, but choosing instead to think about the things that God says is important. That's the renewal of the mind, the changing of the mind. And when it happens, when we start to think differently, we begin to think God thoughts, it will change our actions. And we do that by focusing on what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. Thinking about letting our mind come to rest on the will of God. Now, in order to understand that, you have to know that there are at least, at least, three different levels to the will of God. Let me walk you through all three of them real fast this morning. Number one, there's the sovereign will of God. The sovereign will of God captures things that will happen no matter what we decide, no matter what we think, no matter what we do. These things will happen. The rising of the sun, the setting of the sun, the tides, the sovereign will of God. We can even move that into our personal lives. There are certain things that are covered by the sovereign will of God. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, says that there is a time to be born and there is a time to die. That fits within the sovereign will of God. There are other things that fit there as well. We just don't have time to get into them, but you see where we're going with this. The second level is known as the revealed will of God. It's what we find in Scripture, and it's what we receive from the Holy Spirit, the revealed will of God. Sadly enough, all too often, these things don't come about. 
The Bible would talk about things like this. Do not kill, do not steal, do not covet. On and on and on and on it goes. That's the revealed will of God. Things that are shown to us where we have choices to make with what we do with those things. Like I said, sadly enough, it's all too often that those things don't come about. And then there's this third level known as godliness. Godliness is that place of choice where we are thinking God thoughts. The renewal of the mind kicks in and godliness is a result where we are no longer conforming to the patterns of this world. Godliness is evident when a person begins to act in accordance to their faith without having to think about it very much. It's just second nature. I'm going to do what God wants me to do and I am so in tune with him that it just happens. That's godliness, and that's God's will for us. That is God's will for us. To get to that type of place, though, it requires something pretty big. Romans chapter 12 tells us what it is. It's up on the screen for you. It's called transformation. It's coming. Chelsea will have that back up. Listen to it again. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That word transformation is only seen one time in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's only seen one time. It happens in the most unique place, and it has a different word that is translated for it. Let me just read for you, and you listen close. You don't even have to turn. Just listen close. You'll find the word. This is Matthew chapter 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The word transformed gets translated in this passage as transfigured. Transformation is transfiguration. In Jesus' particular case, his face shone with the glory of God as he was transfigured. It became visibly evident that he was the Son of God. And then verbally evident as God spoke from the heavens. Now here's the cool thing about this. The disciples were so moved by it that they fell down on their faces. And verse 8, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Moses and Elijah had been there, but now it was Jesus only. Well, the depth of teaching in that last verse is incredible. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw Jesus only. If you want to experience transformation, that's the way it works. If you want to experience that change of thinking, that's the way it works. We bow our heads as we deal with difficult things, knowing that we're conforming to the patterns of the world, but we want to be transformed by them. So we bow our heads. We fall on our faces before God and we plead with Him for that transformation to happen. And when we lift our eyes, we see only Jesus. 
you wrestle against anger issues, in those moments where they're raging, when you bow your head and you pray about those moments that you are wrestling with, you pray until you can lift your eyes and see only Jesus. Do you battle against lust? Same thing works. You battle with depression? Same thing works. You battle against anxiety? The same thing works. That transformation happens when you lift your eyes and you see only Jesus. And godliness flows from it, no matter what it is that we're facing. Even in the most difficult of times, when we don't understand why God is doing what God is doing in our lives, why he's even allowing these things to happen, you bow your head, and when you lift it and you see only Jesus, transformation is happening. Transfiguration starts to follow suit. You become a reflection of your relationship with God. That's what it means for transformed thinking. I personally believe that when Joseph made that statement in Genesis chapter 50 to his brothers, that what you intended for evil, God uses for good, God was back in the, the shadow saying, way to go, Joseph, you got it, you got it. Finally, it's happened. And the same thing happens for us when we start to reflect godliness, where we lift our eyes and all we can see is Jesus. God is there saying, way to go, Phil, you got it. That's what we were after. Way to go, Michael, you got it. That's what we were after. Way to go, Tina, you got it. That's what we were after. Plug in your own name. That's what happens in those moments. And God applauds us as our biggest fan. I want to leave you with a thought from Max Lucado from a book he wrote titled very simply, It's Not About Me. It's fitting for what we're talking about today. I'll tell you what, I'll read this as the worship team comes and I'll turn it over. Listen close. He says, how well do you know the following people and organizations? Jack Tinker and Partners, Doyle Dane Bernbach, BBDO, Foote, Cone, and Belding, J. Walter Thompson. How'd you do? Not too good? If not, then the ones on the list are pleased. Advertising agencies don't exist to make a name for themselves. They exist to make a name for others. While you may not be acquainted with the companies, aren't you familiar with their work? Plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief it is. The work of Jack Tinker and partners for Alka-Seltzer in 1976. We try harder. Doyle Dane Bernbach created the slogan for Avis Rent-A-Car in 1962. Mmm, mmm, good. Credit BBDO with the catchphrase Campbell Soup is used since 1935. Well, you've never heard of, heard of foot, cone, and belding. Have you heard this motto? When you care enough to send the very best. Hallmark began using the line in 1934. You don't hum the name of J. Walter Thompson, but have you hummed the jingle his agency wrote for Kellogg's? Snap, crackle, pop, Rice Krispies. We could learn a lesson from these companies, what they do for clients, we exist to do for Christ. To live reflecting the mirrors, the brightness of the Lord, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. As Heaven's advertising agency, we promote God in every area of life, including success. That's right, even your success is intended to reflect God. Listen to the reminder Moses gave the children of Israel. Always remember that it is the Lord your God who gives you power to become rich, and he does it to fulfill the covenant he made with your ancestors. From where does success come? God. It is the Lord your God who gives you power to become rich. And why does he give it? For his reputation, to fulfill the covenant he made with your ancestors. 
God blessed Israel in order to billboard his faithfulness. When foreigners saw the fruitful farms of the promised land, God did not want them to think about the farmer, but the farmer's maker. Their success advertised God. Nothing has changed. God lets you excel so you can make him known, and you can be sure of one thing. God will make you good at something. This is his principle. True humility and fear of the Lord leads to riches, honor, and long life. Solomon wrote that. Would you expect any less? A godly life often results in success. Consider a construction worker, for example. Imagine a troublemaking, hard-drinking fellow. Before he knows Christ, he's not much of an employee. Frequent hangovers, padded expense accounts, sneaks out early on Friday afternoons. He does it all, and he pays the price. Overdue bills, bail-bonded debts, a resume that reads like a rap sheet. But then Christ finds him. Not only does God save his soul, he straightens out the man's work habits. The guy shows up on time, he does his job, he stops complaining and starts volunteering. Everything improves, attitude, productivity, cooperation. And guess who notices? His boss. And guess what happens? Promotions, pay increases, the company truck and credit card, success. But with success comes a problem. And he goes on through the things that we were just talking about. The whole point of that being this. You exist as God's advertising agency. And when your mind is transformed to a place where you are no longer conformed to the patterns of this world, but you are reflecting Jesus, then you're speaking Jesus over everything and over everyone. And God is there applauding as your biggest fan. It's a discipline. Work at it. Work at it. Stand in. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're asking you to guide these moments as holy ones. Do in our lives what needs to be done. Every one of us, do in our lives what needs to be done. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.